This is Subject Matter, the show for creators who want to grow with audio. I'm Ben Bradbury. Hey everybody, welcome back to Subject Matter. It's great to have you here and thanks for tuning in. What if I told you that your business model, either as a creator, the content you're creating, working for someone else, or thinking about starting a business, is a reflection of one thing, or can be a reflection of one thing, I should say, and that is your market dynamics. The market that you're in, the opportunity that you have, can often inform the business that you create. Now, my guest today applied this with his company, Red Circle. He's called Mike Caden. He's the co-founder and CEO. Red Circle has raised their most recent round was $6 million, and they are a platform for podcasters and brands to scale their message. And what I find really interesting about Mike's story today is that he didn't start by building a product or even talking to users. He took a step back and looked at the market. And we get into the way that the podcast landscape is building out and the three different sections that you fall into as a podcaster, either in the long tail, what Mike calls the fat torso, or the power law right at the top, the few thousand shows right at the top of the curve. Now, I would keep listening because this is a really juicy way of understanding the industry that we all know and love, the audio industry, and some of the opportunities that are in it. I think some of the big things that you're going to take away from today's episode is, well, number one, how to actually use this market opportunity to impact your business model should get you thinking. Number two is Mike has done a really good job of managing conflict with his co-founder. And we're going to talk about how you can manage conflict with your audience. Because out of, I believe, out of tension, really good ideas come. So that's a very critical skill. And then finally is Mike has some really great values with Red Circle, being real and being respectful. And we talk about how you can apply those values, not just as an operator, but as a creator. Because when you pair creators with operational talent, that's where the magic happens. So this is a great episode. There's also a really special one for me because when I heard about Mike raising six million almost a year ago with Red Circle, that was right around the time I decided to dive into audio fully as my career and now with content with Workweek. So it was really cool to be able to talk to Mike on the show. He's an incredible mind and I really hope you enjoy this episode. Let me know what you think. You can reach me on Twitter. You can drop me an email. It's at benbradbury underscore or ben at workweek.com. I'd love to hear from you. Please enjoy. Mike, welcome to Subject Matter. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. So I thought we could start at a slightly unconventional place. I know that you are a chess fanatic. You've played chess for several years. Tell us what a love of chess has taught you about operating a business. Oh, gosh. Well, I haven't been a chess. I, I learned how to play chess at a very young age and got super into it and but didn't really like studying. So I was really good <laughs> when I was young. And then when I started playing against like people who were actually like into studying and getting better instead of just playing for fun, I started getting smacked by everybody I played and then I stopped <laughs> enjoying it. So I stopped playing. But then <laughs> at some point, maybe a year ago, uh, my friends were playing together and I sort of got the itch again and I've become uh, you know, fully addicted to it. And really what I think I've learned from it is actually that study. You know, Now the way I've been able to get better is by spending time on YouTube, watching videos and spending time reading and understanding some of the theory. And that's what's enabled me to actually get better at the thing as opposed to just continuing to play and making the same mistakes over and over again. And for me, when I founded this business, I was uh, just had a child, my first child, and I was up all night, uh, you know, as you do. 
And I have these very distinct memories of just crushing through audiobook after audiobook of all the startup books and all <laughs> the financing books and, you know, running your businesses accounting for dummies book and a million of them. And I think all of that study has made this whole entrepreneurial journey a lot more tolerable because I've made a lot less mistakes. Mm. And when you were reading or listening to those books, is that something where you'd listen cover to cover? Would you jump in at a specific concept? Talk us through your learning style in a bit more detail. Yeah, I've always been a cover to cover guy, or at least a, a first chapter to last chapter, because I was usually listening on audio. And in the case of the beginning of this business, my hands were full of baby, so I didn't really have a choice. But yeah, I've always been a cover to cover. Even, you know, I'm a software engineer by training. And, and I, when I was learning new stuff, I had a habit of, I'm just going to pick up the reference book and I'm going to read this thing from beginning to end. And that's just always been my style, like sort of, uh, you know, get a cup of coffee and gear myself up for a big attack and go ahead and go through the whole thing and try to, to make sense of it as you go, as opposed to just picking and choosing. Hmm. Now, I think reading is kind of this meta skill that that helps you sharpen anything. It's like this whetstone that just sharpens the mind. And I think it's like one of the most proven ways to learn. I think uh, another really good way to learn is through osmosis, through other people. And I'm curious if when you were starting Red Circle, if there were any conversations you had that left a particular imprint on you that kind of informed the way that you were thinking about the business model, the product strategy, your hiring, any of these kind of high leverage decisions. Were there any conversations that really shaped that? Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, I, I founded this business in collaboration with my co-founder, Jeremy Lermit, and he and I are about as different as you can be. I'm an engineer. He's more of a product and marketing guy. I'm always wearing a collar. He's always wearing a t-shirt. Uh, he's better at talking to customers. I'm better at thinking technically. And, you know, the, all the conversations we had as we were sort of deciding and figuring out what we were going to do with this business were pivotal in deciding the shape. But one of the things that really has stuck with me a conversation that I had early on thinking about startups and how to build businesses and how to grow them. Everybody's always thinking about, all right, how can I build like revenue? What can I do to focus and grow the top line of the graphs that I'm looking at for my business? And that's obviously important. You know, growing a business is the reason why we're doing it. But one investor early on, and I honestly can't remember who it was, put this little nugget in my head and I've been working with it ever since, which is that actually the most successful startups are not optimizing for the growth of their business metrics, but instead uh, on the growth of their knowledge, their ability to learn about the market that they're working on faster than anybody else is what's going to put you in a position to be the most successful. In other words, sure, you know, if you can get to a million dollars in revenue, that's great. But if you can figure out the market faster than anybody such that you can get to a million dollars in revenue, that's actually more powerful if you have confidence in your ability to execute, then just understanding your customer, understanding the market space, understanding the technology at depth is a stronger way to build your business than to just focus on like, what's the next incremental dollar that I can make tomorrow. Mm. The founder of AngelList, Naval Ravikant, has this interesting concept where he says, today we live in these cycles where technology is evolving so fast that there are these opportunities where you can go from knowing nothing about a market to booting up incredibly quickly, building something around it and capitalizing on an opportunity. And that whole cycle from learning boot up to exit may take as little as three years. So you're living on these like very tight timelines. I think that's an interesting segue to Red Circle and for us to understand a bit more about your company. Set the scene for us by kind of explaining the game you're playing through the lens of the market opportunity. So when you think about the market that Red Circle is addressing and some of the headwinds and tailwinds that are shaping that, what does that look like to you as co-founder? 
Yeah. I mean, when we sat down to start this business, we had this idea that we didn't know if it was true or not. And then eventually we got our hands on the data to show it. So let me explain this market dynamic that we focus on. On, If you take a look at all of the podcasts that are out there and you think about how big they are, as in how many listeners there are, and then how many of those podcasts there are, uh, there's a really interesting distribution, right? There's a million, bajillion, you know, several million podcasts down in the space where there's almost nobody listening, right? If you aggregate the bottom several million of podcasts together and you analyze their listenership, it's around 10 or 12% of the listening that's happening on those bottom several million podcasts. And then if you take the top couple thousand, you're going to see about 35% of the podcast audience is listening to those shows. That's your Joe Rogan's, that's your New York Times, and so on. And it's this middle part of the market, which when you put everything together is about half of it, you know, basically podcasts with around a few hundred downloads per episode to, you know, 100,000, maybe a few hundred thousand downloads that we call the, the fat torso is what we call it. It's named after me. And it's, uh, you know, it's not the head of the market. It's not the long tail. It's this middle class podcaster where there's so much listening and engagement happening, but very few sort of tools, very few businesses built around enabling those podcasters to succeed, whether that's about growth, whether that's about analytics or whether that's about monetization. Similarly, on the other side of the market, let's say you're an advertiser, you know, how do you gain access to those podcasts? You know, most of the advertising deals that are getting done non-programmatically, which is most of the advertising deals, these are still primarily powered by emails, spreadsheets, PDFs with signatures on them, checks in the mail. If you can right here next to me on my desk, I have a pile of 12 checks that we've received in the last month that I have to deposit. You know, all of that overhead and complexity makes sense. If you're buying on the top 50 shows, sure, you can send 50 emails, that's manageable. But if you're buying advertising on the next 30,000 shows, it becomes completely impossible to actually manage the execution of an advertising campaign at any kind of scale through that fat torso of podcasts, right? And so both sides of the market, I think we're lacking for tools to make it possible with technology to have an efficient market for podcast advertising that exists for these middle-class folks, but the opportunity in terms of accessing a unique and large set of listeners was just super obvious to us. And we didn't have the data in the beginning to know that that half the market was sitting on these middle-class podcasts. But now that we have it, we know that it was a, a market insight that we were glad we focused on because, again, we think that area is super underserved and it's the place that we spend all of our time thinking about. Two things I, I want to call out there. One is that you made these decisions from a mix of data, but primarily instinct at first. So you had your thesis, but the lack of data didn't stop you from moving. And I think that's one of the things that some marketers and builders get wrong in the space is to wait for the data, the attribution to confirm your thesis. But actually, if you've got a hunch, you should trust that instinct and then figure out the data later because that's allowed you to execute a lot quicker. The second thing is I really like this segmentation of the audio industry into this power law of a very small number of elite performers, the fat torso what you're serving, and then the very long tail over to this side. I'm realizing that depending if you're building products and services for the creator economy, for one of these podcasters, that the level of scale you need to hit is very different depending on who that is. Like, for example, 
I spoke to the firm that manages Joe Rogan, he only has a couple of dozen clients because that's all he needs versus someone who's building for the long tail, like anchor.fm building for, to make it easy to host podcasts. They're going to get millions and millions of podcasts on there. And you've realized like there's a relationship between the scale that Red Circle needed to succeed and the total addressable market, which I think is really clever. The uh, the business model of Red Circle is a reflection of those market dynamics as well, right? So if you take a look at the podcast hosting companies that have existed for 10 or 15 years, most of them have made their money by charging podcasters 10, 20, 50 bucks a month, depending on services, which is a totally reasonable business model and totally makes sense. If you're chasing after the long tail of podcasts, there are millions of them and it's a huge opportunity to charge those millions you know, 10 or 20 bucks a month. If you're focusing on these middle-class podcasts, which of which there's only maybe tens of thousands, there's a limit to the size Red Circle could be if our primary business model was focused on just charging those podcasters a fixed SaaS fee. On the other hand, the fact that 50% of the market is listening to those pods, well, that completely changes the dynamic. We can focus on bringing on a bunch of podcasters in this middle-class zone and have a much larger audience than we should Based in comparison to many of these other uh, hosting companies that focus on large numbers of podcasts instead of focusing on acquiring a lot of audience. In fact, it's a counter position thing because I think most podcast hosting companies, their biggest line item on their bill is the bandwidth for the audio that they have to serve out to end users' phones. And so most of these hosting companies, I suspect, make a lot more money off their collection of small podcasts who don't have much audience versus the largest ones that actually cost them a lot of money for bandwidth. And so for us, it forced our business model to be like, okay, we're not going to charge podcasters. We're going to focus on monetizing the audience because that's where the outsized part of this market exists for where we're focusing. And it's affected the way we've designed the business as a result. I think that's a really cool insight that your business model is a reflection of market dynamics. And it reminds me of Chris Dixon's essay, The Idea Maze, where he says that the startups that succeed are the ones that understand the maze that they play in the best. And he uses this idea of the maze because the maze has dead ends. It has companies that didn't make it. It has people who made it all the way to the exit and why they did that and why some companies did that faster than others. And being able to understand those pitfalls, like why in audio, for example, Napster was the wedge that enabled people to stream media directly to their phone, how LimeWire helped with that and how that then paved the way for Spotify. It lets you start to kind of connect the dots in audio. Now, switching gears for a second, I'm interested to dig into your unique skill set and why this was the challenge you solved. Because we've talked about the market dynamic and how the business model kind of was built. And you've mentioned, we touched on a second ago, your technical background and also your experience in the podcasting sector. And you also have a co-founder who is very different to you personality-wise in the way that he operates. So why do you think you as a co-founding duo or how are you uniquely qualified to solve this problem as an operating team? Yeah, good question. I mean, the story goes back to the two of us worked together at Uber before we started this business. And Jeremy was a, a pretty early operator there. And I was fairly early as well on the engineering side. And as it turns out, the two of us actually hated each other for a little while. So my team at Uber was responsible for building tools uh, for the marketing team. So a bunch of uh, marketing automation, you know, multi-channel communication systems. And he was on the marketing squad and he always thought we were building the wrong stuff and used to, you know, complain to me that we were focused on the wrong things and we were building what they didn't need. And 
he was right. I mean, I was just arrogant and I was building what I thought was cool technically versus what the business actually did. I was young and I was just doing what I thought was cool. And, you know, it was sort of an open rift between the two of us that lasted for a while until a bunch of higher ups sort of recognized that there was a lot of potential in what my team engineering team was building, but that the marketing team both needed slightly different stuff and also wasn't fully considering the direction that we were going and sort of had a big kumbaya set of meetings about how we need to set this in the right course. And as a result of that, they actually sort of shoved Jeremy onto my team as a product manager. And so we sort of came into it with a pretty heavy disagreement and and left a few years later, really respecting and understanding each other and how to disagree and have the conflicts that were productive together. And, you know, before that, I was like, ah, product managers, we don't really need those. Uh, And then after that, I realized how bad of a product manager I was and how we definitely need them. And so, you know, when we came to found the business, what was really nice is that we have these, uh, this dichotomy of skills, but also what was really nice was that we knew how to disagree because this whole journey, there's going to be a lot of ups and downs. There's going to be a lot of which direction do we goes. And if you don't have the depth of a relationship with your partners in a business like this, it can easily fall apart. I've heard, you know, I don't have the numbers that a large number of uh, venture back startups fall apart because of founder conflict. And it's been nice for us to not have to struggle with that too much. So talk to me about how you learned to manage conflict with your co-founder, because you're right, this is something that comes up a lot. And I think especially with creators and podcasters, there is always this tension between what you feel really called to create, which gives you longevity in creation, but then also being able to marry that with feedback from your audience. And I know some creators who feel this tension between my audience wants one thing, they're giving me lots of feedback over here, but on the other hand, I want to do something different because it's what I'm really called to. And it's kind of out of that tension, you get something really productive in the creator space. So I think there's lessons you can probably learn from operators. So talk to us about what was the process you went through to become better at managing conflict as a duo? Yeah, I guess I'll say two things. One is, you know, at Red Circle, we have a set of cultural values that we've decided as a team we want to, you know, be about. And one of those is called Be Real, which is about bringing yourself to work and being honest with people, being direct and not talk behind people's back and being willing to tell people the hard feedback that they need to hear. And the other one that comes with it is uh, another value that's called be respectful, which is sure, if we're going to tell people that they need to be direct with folks, and that's going to create a certain amount of uh, tension and vulnerability, then you also need to make sure that there's a baseline understanding of respect and a depth of relationships between people such that you're in a position where you can hear that feedback or give it comfortably. And I think those values come out of the relationship between co-founders at the business, which is that we, you know, we're not the best friends in the world, but we have deep respect for each other and each other's strengths, and we give it to each other straight. And I think in a relationship like that, where everybody understands each other at some level of depth, that's where conflicts can happen. And resolutions are not about minimization of discomfort, but are about maximization of value in the decision. And that can only happen if there's enough humility on both sides and enough depth in the relationship on both sides, such that you know who wins doesn't matter. It's more about what comes out of it. And so that we sort of try to codify that into the values of the business. The other thing is, I asked a question about this when I interview people. Uh, all the time, which is about conflicts and how to resolve them. I find you know the most productive teams are the ones that, when there is conflict, say you know not open animosity kind of conflict, but just about which way should we go? Should we do Plan A or Plan B? That the best teams 
and the most uh, productive decision makers are the ones that can resolve those conflicts without people being mad at each other and can do it, you know, productively. And so I always ask people when I interview, hey, you know, tell me about a conflict you've had and how you resolved it. And it's okay if you tell me a story where it didn't go well. I want to know what you learned from it and stuff like that. And I think you can learn a lot about people from asking them those kind of questions. People will blame their managers or blame the other team or blame themselves or focus on the good things are focused on the positive outcomes or the negative outcomes. You know, so a lot you can learn from somebody from asking that question. To me, there's no right answer, but one of the most common answers that I hear that I like is when you disconnect the conflict and the decision from the people and the passions, and instead you connect it to the data or whatever information you have to sort of take these ideas and who cares about them out of the way and focus on like what information do we have to know which direction to go. It's like in engineering all the time, you'll have two different ideas about which way to go. What data do we have to support one way or another and try to make the best decisions based off that. That can be a helpful way to get unblocked in, in a scenario like this. Yeah, being able to detach your emotions from decisions. One of my favorite books is Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene. And the first law in his mind to really understanding humans is to master your emotions. Because if you don't have emotional control, you let them run riot, it's going to impact your decisions, you act irrationally, and that snowballs very quickly. Let's come back to the values of Red Circle for a second. I think a lot about the kind of interplay between creators and operators, because I think the way that you create really significant value as a creator is being able to pair with incredible talent, whether that is a software service that you use, whether that is hiring a freelancer, a VA, even going as far as to building out a team around you like we're doing at Workweek. And I think part of that is being able to have shared values across being the creative team and the operating team. So as a thought exercise, if you put yourself in the shoes of a podcaster for a second, and you've been on plenty of podcasts, and you had to apply these two values of being real and being respectful, how would you apply those values as a creator rather than as an operator? So that would be with your audience in mind, with the team you work with in mind, with your content in mind. I think for the audience, it relates pretty directly. I, I think your audience is going to know if you're full of it, if you will. And so I think an audience that really cares about your content is going to desire to hear you, you know, be real and be yourself as a creator. If you're coming in uh, and inauthentically doing an ad read or you're covering something that is just like the hot stuff of the day instead of what you actually care about and bring passion and energy to, I think your audience is going to know. And so like your show, whether it's about you or it's about what you're into, in the end of the day, it comes from you. And I think if you're not real with it, I think your audience is going to know. So I think that's a good value just to hang on to in everything you do. I try to be my honest self uh, everywhere where you can find me. The way I'm talking to you right now is no different from the way I talk to my friends or, or my wife, right? It's the same me. And then be respectful. I mean, I think that's part of it too. We see some podcasters show up to Red Circle. They come from another podcasting company and they have 12 different ad insertion points throughout their content, right? This is not respecting your audience to have an ad every four minutes. Wow. Um, and if you sit down and watch uh, you know, some television shows these days, you can get that, right? Yeah. And so, and it's going to hurt your relationship with the audience and eventually they're going to go, right? Uh, if you're in it for a quick win and you're in it for, let me make as much money as I can on programmatic ads for the next three months, your audience is going to know that you're not being respectful to them. And that's going to be the end of the story. I also feel like the um, the pandemic has gotten us really used to 
listening to poor audio quality and people, you know, talking on AirPods mm-hmm. and this kind of stuff. And I think I have really big ears, but I, I, and I don't think I'm an incredible audiophile, but I do care about the quality of the audio that comes out on the other side of my show. So if you're an audio creator, you know, respect your audience, build a pleasant listening experience, check your levels, you know, make good ad insertion cuts and make the experience of listening to the show not jarring, but pleasant. I think people have gotten a little lazy about that over the last couple of years as like, television stars have moved into their living rooms to record broadcasts. Uh, we've started to get a little loose, but I think it's time to work our way back. Yeah, I love that. That's a really creative application. Now, you touched on uh, programmatic advertising there, and I know that a big piece of Red Circle's business model is host reds on the other side. Let's kind of get into this playbook that I see you guys executing at the moment. Could you start by laying out the difference between host reds and, and programmatics and then explain why you decided to go the host red route? If you could map out the decision path kind of in the context of this wider market opportunity conversation that we've been talking about, I think that'd be a really interesting place to go next. Sure. Yeah. We focus on host reds, but we actually do both. So let me explain both and I'll explain sort of our, our the way it works with us. So Programmatic ads, probably not the best term, maybe pre-recorded advertising is the best way to call it. And on Red Circle and in most platforms that offer this, you know, if you're a podcaster, you can turn on this feature. You don't have to record any ad reads yourself. The ads are pre-recorded by brands and inserted into your content in a fully automated fashion. So you don't pick and choose the specific advertiser. You know, on our platform, you can control and say, oh, I don't want any say pharmaceutical ads or something like this. You have some coarse grain controls over which advertisers are running, but each individual download of the podcast is uniquely constructed with different ads uh, specific to that particular listener. So if you're in California, you might hear ads for the supermarket in California. And if you're in Cincinnati, you're going to hear something totally different. So that's programmatic ads. As a podcaster, it's a lot less work, but the CPMs, in other words, how much money you make per ad insertion uh, is a lot lower in programmatic because again, you're not doing any work and it's all sort of happening automatically. Uh, On the other hand, there's host read ads, which are more of those typical podcast ad reads that you're probably familiar with where the host of the show is reading the ad. It's done in an endorsement style where often you're saying, I tried this and it was good. Uh, you should consider it to, in that case, the podcaster is doing a lot more work because they sometimes have to try the product and then also have to spend a good amount of time recording and producing a good ad read that connects with their audience in the way they're used to. Those are more lucrative and they're higher CPMs, but obviously take more work. Um, and you also have more control. You can say, I, I don't want to, I'm not going to read an ad with my own voice for a product that I'm not comfortable reading or doesn't align well with my audience. With Red Circle, we do both. We believe in both. But the technology that we built is primarily oriented around making those host-read ad reads work at a larger scale than you can find other places. It's obviously complicated to have to collect the voices of, say, hundreds of podcasters for a campaign, but our technology makes that possible. And that's, again, part of the market dynamics that we see playing out there, which is that host-reads are very popular at the top of the market, and people have just said, ah, it's too hard to figure this out across the next 50,000 shows. But our technology is aiming to take that on because that's how we feel we can maximally monetize this segment of the market. I'd like to underscore there how this technology allows you to scale intimacy. One of the big value props of being a podcaster is listening to someone's voice. It feels like you're in the room with them. It's that fly on the wall phenomena. And 
the value of the host red ad is again being more personal because instead of hearing from like a random commentator i'm generally hearing from the same podcast host about a product that they like i can share my in jokes i can use the same tone of voice i'm familiar with it lets me be intimate and that's where I think there's a real opportunity in the creator economy, either as a creator to use these tools or as an operator to serve creators, is building products and services that lets the creator scale their intimacy, that lets them feel more personal at a wider scale. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're able to do with Red Circle's platform. Yeah, that's a really interesting. I'm going to steal that from my marketing web pages, but um, scaling intimacy. I think that's awesome. <laughs> um, that's the right idea. You know, I, I think a good uh, way to explain this is uh, some folks have really focused on some of the innovation that's been happening with artificial voices, where we can take a corpus of uh, all of my voice. I could read, you know, 30 pages of a book and then they can create a synthetic, you know, Mike Caden. I think the technology is amazing and has all kinds of really cool applications like automated translation of a podcast or things like that. But I think people who think that that will replace the host read ad have a complete misunderstanding of what makes a host red ad special. There's some value to keeping the host voice consistent as a way basically to help the audience miss the fact that we transitioned into an advertisement. But the main thing that the host red ad is that makes it beneficial is the fact that it's not just in their voice, but that it's in the style and mannerisms and like you said, the jokes and the right fit and feel that the host has for the rest of the show, which makes you as the listener feel like this person is actually like, you know, it's the same thing that makes the show entertaining can make this advertising entertaining and engaging for you as well. And so that's why these ads go at a premium. That's why we believe that this type of advertising is what makes podcasting so special. You can buy pre-recorded ads to play on Spotify between music tracks or wherever else audio can be found on the radio and so on. But there's something special about those AirPods in your ears while you're doing the dishes where the person that you've been listening to for two years takes a moment to whisper in your ear about Squarespace or whatever it is. You know, there's a reason why I bought stuff off podcast ads. And I every time I see an Instagram ad, I move past it as quickly as I can because I don't trust it, right? I don't know why these pants are $89. But if I heard somebody that I've been listening to for two years tell me, these, I bought these pants, I tried them, they're great. I believe it. And I think that's why this medium is so powerful. And programmatic ads are great. The podcast listening audience is a very attractive audience. It tends to be better educated. It tends to be uh, more affluent and tends to be folks who are looking to better themselves and learn. And so this is a crew um, that advertisers really want to get in front of. And if a pre-recorded ad is the right fit for your brand, you know, maybe it's because you have compliance language that you need to do, or maybe because you're just looking for really broad, you know, you want to put an ad on every single podcast download that exists. It's still a great choice. And the data is out there to show that these producer red ads or pre-recorded ads can be really powerful as well. But the maximum performance always comes from host red. And we want to make sure that's possible, whether your podcast has a thousand listeners or whether your podcast has, uh, you know, millions. I was really struck when we connected for our pre-interview before this full interview, where I asked you if we're ever going to move beyond advertising as the primary revenue for podcasts, and you instantly said no. And I think there's, I agree, and I think part of the reason is because the fundamental of media, it's a game of capturing attention. Whether you're doing that in podcasts or in a newsletter, on a blog, even on a plane that's flying over a beach, wherever it is, like with that streaming banner, you're trying to capture eyeballs and attention. And so... 
the game is finding partners who want to leverage that attention, who want to be attached to it. And that's what we call advertising. You're advertising on that. And so I think accepting that and finding better and more targeted ways to advertise that feels like more of an organic experience. Like, for example, I'm a huge fan of Adam Buxton's podcast. I don't know if you've listened to that. He's a comedian. His show, he has a whole page with his ads. They are just hilarious. I listen to all of them. He's turned adverts into songs. He's turned them into skits. He does voice all the, and I'm just cracking up listening to him. And it makes me want to buy the product and actually just engage with him as a creator. So I think it's an exciting time to figure that out. For our uh, last segment of today, Mike, I'd love to jump into our lightning round. I've got some quick fire questions for you and you've got to answer one or two sentences with uh, what comes up on the top of your head. Sound good? Sounds great. All right. So first question, excluding Red Circle, what's one piece of software or hardware that you can't live without? Tough one. I, th- I would say Goland. That's the IDE that I write uh, software in. It's from JetBrains. Incredible piece of software for writing code. What's your favorite podcast you're listening to right now? I like the podcast called Acquired. It's uh, They dive really deep into businesses and how they achieve uh, scale and how they you know maintain power. I'll have to give that a listen. What's the most fun that you have when you work? Oh, spectacular question. When I find flow, it can be found in lots of places. But if I have the right music playing and I'm in a full creative and fully focused state, nothing beats that. I love that. And uh, one follow-up question, just because I'm curious about flow as well. What are the triggers that you use to get yourself in flow? Got to have the right music playing, like I said, and you have to turn things off that distract you and take you out of it. You got to have a clear calendar and maybe turn your slack off for an hour or two. I'm going to send you my uh, Spotify playlist after this called Frequencies, <laughs> yeah, which is electronic music to find flow in your loop. Uh, we can uh, we can trade. Last question. What's one piece of advice that you would give to a creator who is starting out right now on the start of their journey? Focus on your content. I mean, I think a lot of people want to learn how to grow and that's what they focus on. And they want to say, okay, what, how can I do cross promotions? What, how can I put money to work to figure out how to grow this thing? Nothing's more important than building content that people want to listen to. You can find ways to bring people into the top of your funnel, but if your podcast stinks, they won't stay. So just focus on that. And once you're comfortable there, then it's time to focus on growth. If your podcast stinks, then they won't stay. Yeah. I think that's a great line to, uh, to end on. What a tweet right there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mike, this has been a real pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time. If our yeah, audience thanks. wants to keep up with you and, and your ideas, where can people follow you online? Uh, Twitter is the place to find me. It's uh, M-K-A-D-I-N-M-K-A-D-I-N-M-K-A-D-I-N is my Twitter handle. And then, of course, you can go to redcircle.com and sign up and check us out. Perfect. Mike, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks a lot. This was fun. Thanks for tuning in. I'd love to hear what you thought of the episode and any ideas you've got for future content. You can email me directly at ben at To keep up to date with the very latest content, make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with a friend who might find it useful? I'll see you next time.